0: Buddies, Your one-stop shop for learning everything you might want to know about the academic discipline of game studies Or at least the parts of it we've read. I'm Cameron Kunzelman. And I'm Michael Lutz And uh, today we're reading a different book
1: (laughs) As opposed to the book that we read in the last episode. (laughs) Yeah, uh, it's it's a different
0: book this time. Yeah, so this is episode five Um, We've been going for that's five months Michael. Yeah it's a, it's a real real time
1: yeah no I mean after it took us like what six months to actually produce the first episode after we recorded it but then it, it wasn't mm-hmm. actually six months it was a long time but we it was a, it we, was close to six months <laughs> it, it was we've been going at a pretty good clip since then
2: hmm
0: yeah it's a real uh, testament to the virtue of caring about reading books about mm-hmm. games yep um, so yeah so today we're doing uh, Roger Calois. Uh man play and games kind of a classic of the field like a like a real big you know if we're thinking of of the kind of titans of the history of game studies right books that get referenced all the time even perhaps when they don't need to be Mm -hmm. there is this book and then there is the book that this book references (laughs) yeah uh which i guess we'll have to get to at some point but weirdly enough uh, that that book doesn't seem um, as readily important, I don't know, as this book. So that the book that we are referring to, of course, yeah. is uh, Hozinga's
1: Homo Ludens. Right. Uh, and the book that we are going to talk about is, in some sense, entirely a response to what goes down in Homo Ludens. But uh, I think I agree with you that it doesn't feel quite as... Um, I don't know why that is. Uh Maybe because it's less systemic than Kawa, I don't know. Yeah, I don't. I don't quite know. Uh, there, there
0: is something about. So, if if you're not familiar with the book, you can go and find Homo Ludens anywhere. Um, like, it's a very accessible book. This is not some sort of obscure book from the history of, of games, and it's kind of like an important book for the history of philosophy. I think medievalists care about it. Uh, they because do. I, I think that Hozinga was like, disciplinarily a medievalist, mm-hmm. uh, I believe. Um, but it's a book that's about just, like, the sociality of games and what games do socially. And, and I'm going to go on a limb here and say that Kawa is interested in what games do
1: in a broader sense. Does that yes. does that seem fair to you? Yeah, no, that, that definitely seems fair. Um, and I think yeah the game studies as as a kind of discipline uh sort of i guess i should guess i should say modern game studies because uh you know people have written about and talked about play for a long time um but it really does seem to start with uh Huizinga as kind of i don't know the the patriarch or whatever and then um uh kawa coming in as as kind of this oedipal figure who's going to be like well here are all the ways in which this is wrong and sort of the the tensions between um their ways of thinking about games have, I think, influenced I mean, a lot of a lot of stuff that we've read at least. Yeah, yeah. I think that there
0: is there for whatever reason, when the discipline of of game studies really gets going in the early two thousand, everyone is looking to these folks and and, you know, I think that as we do more of this podcast we'll get a better sense uh, for for why that is. But Uh, the reason that we wanted to go back and read this is precisely because it kind of is inescapable. And I think, uh, last episode when we did Astrid Insulin's Literary Gaming, right, we had to spend (laughs) quite a while in there just kind of relaying out the groundwork that this book does. And so we're like, oh, this is, this is important to go back and talk about. So this book has an interesting kind of publication timeline to it, um... that's important, and we're going to talk about the history of Roger Carois and and kind of what he was all about beyond just this one book uh, later in the episode. Uh, But to give you, like, a a timeline sense uh, that comes up in the translator's introduction for this book um, and then uh, kind of gets played out in the intro. So in 1946, uh, Roger Carois uh, publishes a book in French called Man and the Sacred, um, and this is coming out of his work in the 1930s in the kind of College of Sociology movement that's going on in France. And, and I'll explain what that is later on this episode as well. Um, but in the context of just the sacred in general, um, he, Kawa, thought it was interesting and important to respond to Hazinga. Uh, Because Hozinga is also trying to get at how the sacred and how uh, society itself works around the sacred in Homo Ludens. And so Mm Kawasa says, okay, if I'm going to write about the sacred, I need to write at least a little bit about why Hozinga gets it wrong, (laughs) why he misunderstands the sacred. Um, And so that's an appendix to that book, uh, to Man and the Sacred. Uh over the next decade basically he works on a few different projects, but one of them is Man Playing Games, and so in nineteen fifty eight in France, he publishes uh with Gallimard uh the this book, Man Playing Games, the one that we have read for today, and then that is fairly quickly uh translated by someone named Meyer Barash uh into English in nineteen sixty one and is published by the University of Illinois Press. So it's kind of an interesting thing that happens in this publication history, of someone who is a basically a public intellectual, for for lack of a better word for it, a public intellectual in France writes mm-hmm. a, a book about the sacred in a general sense, and then writes basically a popular press sequel to it. That's <laughs> you know that's kind of like a uh, I don't know that might show up on like, Larb like the L A Review of Books yes. that style of book right yeah. Uh, about games for the French public, and then that gets turned into an academic book, essentially, in the United States very quickly. Yes. So so there's a way... This book, I think, and, and you know, tell me, Michael, if you think this is right or not, but this book uh, sometimes is very specific and sometimes it's very fast and loose. And I think <laughs> that having a sense of what that... Um, what the publication history is maybe explain some of that right because it's not a traditional academic book the way that we think about how those should work now
1: yeah no it um i mean and that's what's interesting about it is i don't know how much of it is is the fact that it is like sort of geared toward a popular audience and then also how much of it is maybe that the practices of sort of argumentation and citation uh, in kind of like the modern academic sense are still being worked out. But yeah, no, Hill will uh, Kawa will just like bounce between a, a fairly specific uh, enumeration of um, some type of game. And then just suddenly he's talking, it's like, we can see this because, um, well, here's some things I've learned about bugs. and I'm going to tell you all about all this stuff that I've learned about bugs and how this has to do with the way that humans play games. And it's, it's very weird. It's very strange. Or he'll make the move. And and this is something that is unavoidable
0: that we'll talk about later in the episode as well, but he'll make the move. He'll, he'll be talking about very specific um, like Mexican national game practices. And then he will say things like African culture. In, right. in big quotation marks, right, mm-hmm. and so you get this kind of movement from the specific to the the problematic
1: general, right? That, that that doesn't doesn't quite work sometimes, right? And he he likes to group cultures in as having certain affinities, but it's it's really weird because it's like he counts like I think American indigenous people and African people and like. I think like Assyrians or something it, like just out of nowhere, Assyrians. Um, and like, if you know anything about kind of like intellectual history uh, in, in uh, Europe and, and America, you can kind of figure out like, you could probably take a really good guess at uh, what types of divisions and groupings of cultures he is, he is uh, going to bat for. Um, and then also at the same time, they're just extremely strange uh ways of approaching it uh, he he talks about China and I guess we'll probably talk about the way he talks about China uh, also
0: yes China gets its own little subsection yes but uh, but yeah so that's all to say that, that he is after he's after kind of a big picture of the way that games work in society mm-hmm. um, and he's after a classification of how that big picture kind of gets uh, chopped up you know into different discrete little bits um and then he's after how those little chopped up bits um fold and interweave into one another to create more complex structures than you know the basic categories and if you listen to our last episode episode four about literary gaming um you might remember that expert insulin is pretty committed to using the four uh uh classifications or four categories of games, four types of games that Calwa is into and then added an additional one as well. But, uh, I don't know if Kalwa is, is as committed to those as maybe some of his, uh, adopters have been.
1: No, he's definitely not. I, um, so I have never read this full book before, uh, but I had read like excerpts. Um, and of course they were the excerpts about, uh, about his categories. Um, and you know, I was doing these readings for for classes and things like that. Uh, and that was kind of that was as much as I knew of of Calois, right? That seemed to be as much as I really needed to know to do what I was doing. Um, and it was surprising to go and read this, you know, from front to back. How little um, of of the book itself is really dedicated to to those categories? Yeah,
0: yeah. So, can you say a little bit more about? so the way you encountered this book, I guess, is just through like the classic chapter two, the classification of games chapter, um,
1: just like as a set of tools basically for thinking about games. Right, right, right. So, um, I believe it was a, uh, a practicum or a seminar or something like that. This was in grad school. Um, and, uh, it was just one of those, uh, Sort of a reading practicum or a reading seminar where for the first probably two-thirds We just did a whole bunch of reading and then um, the last couple weeks were kind of like doing writing or a project or something like that um, And so this means that we were really busting through a lot of um, excerpts of various key thinkers um, regarding sort of play and media and so on and so forth things like that and um, and yeah, no, so that was how uh, Kawa was sort of presented, was like, well, here are some categories that this guy comes up with that you might find useful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that, that's kind of the
0: same situation that I encountered him in. Um, although I, I, so I took a, a class in graduate school, or I'll, I'll say this, for my master's thesis, I read Kawa and didn't find it super useful or helpful. Um, and then I took a graduate course during my uh, doctoral program um, where we read the whole book, and it was, you know, um, <laughs> a real weird thing to like stumble into for a lot of people in that room because we were reading mostly about contemporary digital games, um, and contemporary games culture. Neither of which this book has much to say about, unless you begin abstracting and building on it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so maybe we just, uh, maybe we just start with a good old chapter one. Look at that! We it's yeah. uh, less than fifteen minutes in, and we're we're ready we to talk about chapter we've one. We've done it. Yes.
1: <laughs> Right, so chapter one, starting at the beginning, the definition of play. Yeah. Um,
0: This is just, I love that this chapter exists uh, as a way of just saying that someone else is wrong.
1: Yes. No, I, like, on the first page, right, uh, he, he... starts like he starts out talking about uh, Huizinga um, and then you know his book Homo Ludens which is 1938 and he's like you know this is great this is important this work although most of its premises are debatable is nonetheless capable of opening extremely fruitful avenues to research and reflection
0: (laughs) yeah this guy is completely wrong but he made (laughs) me think interesting thoughts and so therefore (laughs) we can start with his book Right, um, like that's exactly that, and that you know, to be to be honest, that's kind of the feel of this entire book, right? Like, yeah, these things in the world are interesting, but they're really mostly interesting because of what they made me think about. <laughs> uh, which
1: is, a, I mean, it's a very, very much a sort of mid-century public intellectual way of approaching it. I think, yeah, yeah, very charitable, but only up to a,
0: a certain amount, but. So in this chapter he is really interested in first defining what play is because if we get you an understanding of what play is then we can finally talk about games as kind of like an epiphenomena or a capture apparatus that grabs onto play and does stuff with it right mm-hmm. right um and so, yeah, so, so I, I mean, I, I think I wrote down uh, just, like, some, some of the generic um, definitional moves that he makes. He's not super willing to say, like, play as one thing, but it's like a cluster of behaviors or a cluster of stances toward mm-hmm. the world. So right. he says, um, these are just some of the ones I wrote down. Uh, in certain of its manifestations, play is designed to be extremely lucrative or l- ruinous. Uh, <laughs> it can create no wealth or goods. Uh, thus, it is different from work or art. Uh, it's an occasion of pure waste. Uh, and that games have no other but an intrinsic meaning. Meaning that like play is all about itself and is never really about other things. Right. Um, which he complicates through the rest of the thing. Yeah
1: um it's also i think this is one you missed it's uh it should be i should say because he also complicates this uh but it is supposed to be free and voluntary. so like
0: this is the way yeah yeah and so at the end of the very end of it um he says that he gives it all these different uh definitional statements Mm -hmm. right um and i can actually read them here because that might be helpful for for everyone and if you've got the standard edition of this book this is on pages 9 and 10 and these come up a few times but this is like his big summary at the end of the mm-hmm. at the end of the, uh, the chapter. He says, They are free, in which playing is not obligatory. If it were, it would lose its attractiveness and joyous quality as diversion. Play is separate, circumscribed within limits of space and time, defined and fixed and advanced. It is uncertain. Uh, the course cannot be determined, nor the result attained beforehand. It is unproductive, which is what we were just talking about a second ago. Uh, it is governed by rules under conventions that suspend ordinary laws and for the moment establish new legislation, which alone counts, and it is make-believe. Accompanied by a special awareness of a second reality or a free unreality as against real life. Does this all check out for you, Michael? These uh, kind of
1: six broad ways of thinking it? I I think so. I mean, for, for what he's doing, right? And, and we've already said he complicates some of these points. um, Um, later on but i think kind of in in sort of the almost idealizing way uh that he's going about this i think this makes sense yeah yeah i yeah yeah there were
0: no moments when i was reading this where i you know sometimes when we're reading this book i'll write down in my notes i'll be like no (laughs) or i'll be like oh i think maybe you know what are the exceptions here um and, and I, I yeah I, I do, there aren't that many places here and in fact if you uh if you remember lack back last episode where I, I was trying to kind of complicate the history of the philosophy of play that insulin was was producing mm-hmm Quite literally, my definition of play—the way that I think of of play—is just out of this book, and I forgot. Because, <laughs> because specifically, he says uh, he says there, you know, there are these different. If there are all these things that play does or qualities of play that I just listed off, uh, then those are produced by like this weird ambiguity of the meaning of the word play because it gets used in all these different concepts. You know, right? So you know, you can play Macbeth or or whatever, right? Um, but one of them is, quote, the playing of a performer or the play of a gear. And, and the play of a gear is, the, you know, the kind of, like, <laughs> back and forth operation of a gear and its spokes is uh, exactly the way that I, consider, you know, thought or was talking about play last time. Right. Uh, um, there's, like, a jet going overhead. Do you, do you hear this jet? I do. I do hear that. It's, it's I'm going to leave this in the episode so everyone can hear okay. it. Okay. It's very loud. loud. The jet.
1: It's quite loud.
0: Yeah. They hate, they hate games. Right. <laughs> <laughs> oh but so we we get this kind of big generic uh, umbrella that's trying to bring in all of these different words or, or ways of conceiving of play so that we can get to the point of classifying different kinds of games yep and he does a pretty good job at that i think um yeah do you want to do you want to dive on the uh
1: on the listing qualities here Okay, yeah. So uh, from that fairly fairly brief chapter where we get the definition of play, Calwa uh, moves into chapter two, which is the classification of games, and this is the um, this is the like excerpted chapter that that I had uh, encountered most fully before, um, and uh, essentially uh, what happens here is Calwa uh, like now that he has uh kind of given us a definition of play he wants to get more granular and so he thinks okay so when we say play what are the different types of things that uh we tend to think about or talk about or experience as play or playful right the things that could uh conceivably lead to kind of subcategories of of games as as you call it uh cameron like a kind of capture apparatus for the play instinct um And so he uh, comes up with four basic uh, sort of uh, themes or sensations almost uh, that uh, structure play and they are competition, chance, simulation, uh, or vertigo. Uh, And then these then correspond to games of particular uh, sort of lineages or genera. Um, And so uh, competition uh, is uh, games of Aegon uh, from the I think Greek, uh, alea um, is games of chance. Um, I don't remember what that's from. That's possibly Greek as well. Yeah,
0: yeah, I think so. Yeah. I think they're all Greek except all for Greek? except for this next one, mimicry. Mimicry,
1: um, well, which is specifically an English word, right? And that's simulation. Um, and then uh, i is is vertigo or elinx. I'm never sure how to how to stress that.
0: I, don't, I I said ilinks for a number of years, and then I went to a conference where everyone was saying ilinks, and I just kind of, uh, uh, the contagion, as, as uh, <laughs> Kalwa will call it, the contagion yeah. of
1: uh, standardization came to me so i so i i links i don't know all right so yeah no so these are his uh four types of games um and in addition to that uh they are uh sort of situated along a a spectrum or a kind of um, polarity uh between and this actually came up for insulin as well um between paidea um, and Ludus. So uh, Paideia, uh just to sort of recap, and this is true for um, Calwa as well, uh, is kind of free play, sort of unconstrained imagination um, or sort of pure kind of willing. Uh, and then Ludus, uh, which is... Um, when rules start to become established, right, you start playing, uh, with sort of goals in mind or, um, with certain kind of actions forbidden or only certain actions can be undertaken, right? It's, uh, very often, um, it, for here as well as an in insulin, uh, presented as kind of a, a move from childishness, right? Childish play to kind of like adult play. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, uh, those are the four types. Aegon as competition, uh, and it requires, as, as Kawa says, um, some ability for sustained attention. Um, and one of his earliest examples uh, is, like, games of endurance that children play, right? I can Who can stand on one foot the longest or something like that? Mm-hmm. Um, staring contests. Staring contests, right? And then, of course, like, the obvious uh, sort of adult correspondence there would be, like, actual, like, sporting events or what have you. Um alia is uh interesting because it uh takes all of the kind of power from the person who is playing the game so whereas uh Aegon is about the meeting of at least two forces right um if it's competition there is uh someone competing against uh someone else or something else um there, uh, that's why it requires that sustained attention, right? There's, uh, you, you can intervene in, in the game of Aegon, in the game of competition. Um, but Aaliyah is about sort of willfully giving up all sort of agency and prostrating yourself, uh, between something, something that is not you, right? The roulette wheel. Um, uh, so unlike Aegon, as he says, um, Aaliyah, Negates work, patience, experience, and qualifications. It is, quote, an insolent and sovereign insult to merit. <laughs> so it's so whereas, and this is something we'll probably dig into a lot, right? Um, for Kawa, uh, Aegon is very much where uh, sort of like merit and worth and um, ideas like this get played out in an agonistic uh, competition. Um, whereas uh, Gambling or Aaliyah is about kind of. Giving up everything for the chance of possibly getting everything times two, right? Um, yeah. What,
2: <laughs> what
0: I really like about this, yeah. too, is that it, it provides such a good, and, and you know, built into this in, in several chapters here, he he really starts digging into, like, the, the knock-on effect of a lot of these different things. So if we play lots of games of Aaliyah, then what does that do culturally to us? Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, sometimes I'm like, oh, that makes a lot of sense. And sometimes I'm like, oh, that makes zero sense. Right. Um, But I do like the idea that Aaliyah and the idea of giving fate over to the gods, you know, Mm -hmm. this kind of language he's using over and over again um that that really helps you understand like why people hate card sharks so much and hate people who (laughs) count cards it's like we all go to this casino to basically burn money to the altar of a forgotten god right like right that's what we're we are going here to prove that we have no free will That it's all pure dice rolling um and you're in here
1: counting cards
0: with your phd students you assholes right
1: Right, no, and he, he mentions this very briefly, actually, in, in the previous chapter, where he says, like, the the nihilist is what he calls this figure, who mm-hmm. understands how sort of arbitrary everything is, and who therefore, like, can step outside of sort of the um, the second reality of the game and manipulate it in ways that you're not supposed to. As a theater person, yes. Michael,
0: <laughs> what do you think about Mimicry? Um,
1: I like that it's here. Right, I, I like that uh, you know mimicry and sort of theatrical theatrical performance um, gets included in uh, his idea of play, and um, he's willing to allow it uh, space as a kind of game, right, or as mimicry or simulation as a as a form of gaming, um, because this is I mean one of the things that I do as as a theater person as a Shakespeare person is, uh, you know basically trying to historicize certain theories of, of games right now, uh, in, in the context of, of the 16th and 17th century in England. Um, so it's really nice to have mimicry show up here. Uh, I don't think, uh, and of course, right, this is what every academic thinks about every other academic who is not from their discipline writing about their discipline. I don't think he gives it enough credit. <laughs> <laughs> credit is not exactly the right word. Um, but uh, I think uh, theater uh, can get much, much weirder than uh Kawa is necessarily allowing it to go. Um, but that is also probably to an extent like, you know, me quibbling because of uh, my background in um, performance studies and things like that, right? So one of the things he says about mimicry um, is that it's kind of this, what he calls it, is the knowing falsity of, of performance, right? Um, Everyone knows that a a play is being put on, but everyone pretends to uh, agree that like, I'm in the audience and I'm going to pretend that uh, this is something that I am watching happen, that it is quote unquote real or as real as it can be. And the people who are playing it are going to pretend for the most part that they don't see all of the people sitting out there watching them. Um, And uh, yeah, he, this is also, this is is where bugs first come in. (laughs) <laughs> when he's yeah, because bugs are very right, good. Because at bugs it. love to mimic, um, and I don't know what to do with that other than to say. Yes, that's true. <laughs> like, I don't, I don't necessarily think the the mechanisms by which, um, you know, insects uh, e- evolve to mimic other types of insects or like larger predators or something like that are, are quite as mappable onto human mimicry in in the way that uh, Calwa not necessarily thinks. I'm again, I'm not really sure why this comes up. Right, it's a weird justification um, for him to kind of be like, and this is why i mean it's it's almost like um there's a gesture almost toward kind of uh the human animal right uh like how Mm -hmm. sort of baked in these tendencies are not only in people but kind of in in life itself um but at the same time like yeah i don't necessarily need need this thing about insect mimicry to to justify including something about human mimicry in this book on human games yeah, there's a
0: move that that gets made, or that that Kawa is invested in, and when we talk about the College of Sociology in just a just a bit, I, I think that'll it'll make a little bit more sense. But he is looking for, like many people of the 1920s 1920s through the 1960s, basically, um, is looking for universalizable <laughs> structures, right? Um, and anthropology is looking for universalizable structures for the right. human, right? The um, but Kawa is part of a group of people, um, who is much more interested in looking at the natural world and as humans is just one manifestation of that. So he writes a book at the same time that he's writing this book called The Writing of Stones, that is about geology and visuality. Mm. Like it is it is truly strange and it's like an an early it kind of gets counted in the genealogy of like early non-human studies because it is trying to look at the ways in which geology produces meaning, like internal oh. meaning and then meaning for human beings. so so why do cultures uh, like shiny rocks? Why do we like amethyst, things mm-hmm. like that? And he's saying that it's not just like purely, um, you know symbology. like humans think that these things are interesting. He's saying that there is something going on that interconnects the human with the stone. Um, right. And so I I think in that context, it makes a little bit more sense why like bugs keep showing up (laughs) Yeah, because he really does, you know, conceive of one big spectrum system of the relationship between all life on earth and then the earth itself. Yes. Uh, um, which kind of puts, you know, I mean, we have a lot of discussion in, you know, non-human studies and, and things like that, which you wrote a chunk of your dissertation on and I've, I've yes. written on as well. And what we now call like Anthropocene, um, you know, uh, studies or the disciplinary focus that turns toward the Anthropocene or the... A- the anthrop- anthropocentric turn, <laughs>
2: mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> however we want to phrase it. But all of those are kind of taking those things seriously, right? Like, yeah. now we just look for meaning and trash instead of rocks <laughs> uh, right. and bugs, right? But 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 I, I think it's a good... I'm glad that you're kind of pointing out the weirdness of the bugs there. Because Kawa is doing with games what we do now for... Uh, for, for, you know, any other kind of cast-off object from human relationships. And he's taking them mm. in a big global perspective, right? Rather yeah. than just, like, it's not about you and me, it's about us in this planet. So that's cool, right. I think. I don't know if that pays
1: off in other places beyond the bugs, though, in this book. Yeah, yeah, no. There are—he <laughs> he stumbles into some some weird conclusions from that universalizing— or rather, well, that's, that's really the problem, isn't it, right? It's, like, for him— um uh that that desire to sort of like speak of the system of the world or whatever um is a universalizing tendency whereas i think in the current uh theoretical and critical moment it is much more not that uh, in the sense that, like, there were all of these non-humans surrounding us, you know, teeming and trashing and so on and so forth. Um, but there's not that kind of, like, move toward unity uh, in, in kind of the modern version of this of this type of scholarship. The kind of, like, and now we understand.
0: Yeah. Well, the, <laughs> right. the unity that we... It- on one hand, I think rhetorically you're right. On the other hand, yes. our, our unity that we do draw is the unity of you know uh, of capitalism, right? Yes. We would say that that oh, there are all these different uh, different non humans that are you know trashing and teaming or whatever <laughs> you said, right, in relationship to the human. Uh, and at the end of the day, what what puts them together is not. Um, a relationship of energetics or of affects or something like that, we would say that it's the totalizing power of
1: capitalism. (laughs) And that's something that's missing in this book, right? Yeah. And later on, later on, we'll be able to talk about that more, I think, because he gets sort of indirectly into, into, um, Economic structures Mm -hmm. and and ideologies and so on and so forth, Uh, but uh, just to round out our little uh, taxonomy here, the fourth category um, that Calwa has for us is illinks or ilinks. I'm going to say ilinks. Okay. uh, And this is um, also this is these are games of vertigo. Uh, and they, and I'm quoting him here, they momentarily destroy the stability of perception and inflict a kind of voluptuous panic upon an otherwise lucid mind. So, you know, there's a lot of problems with, with, I think, mid-century academic writing in terms of, you know, like the racism and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, damn, isn't it nice to have, have phrases like the voluptuous panic upon an otherwise lucid mind. Mm-hmm. Um so for so this is essentially um, uh, things like uh, spinning around like the, the most literal example is spinning around in a circle really fast until you get dizzy um, but also and this is an interesting little moment he has uh, he says that this type of game doesn't really come into play uh, so to speak um, as, as a uh, sort of distinct game category for adults at least um until the age of industrialization because that's when you can invent roller coasters uh and various sort of carnival rides and things like that because generally speaking adults aren't like spinning around in circles to make themselves dizzy that's a thing that children do um but also and he does this much later uh you know this is also like drug use and alcohol use uh and i think it's interesting that he talks about that later but here says this doesn't really become a game until we can invent roller coasters yeah is this the place where he talks about bugs that <laughs> of course of course this is
0: the place uh, where he talks about, but bugs that it, eat it,
1: the it's later when he talks. It's when he goes into the it's when he later admits that like oh this is also sort of like drug addiction or whatever oh, okay. because because he says, you know, even even ants can get high. <laughs> yeah, it, yeah, he says like ants have a species desire to get high. It's awesome. Yes.
0: Uh yeah, okay, we'll <laughs> talk about that when we get there, but it is quite weird. Yeah, it's interesting that I guess the wiffle ball bat had not been invented yet. Um yeah, by the, by the, by 1958 Bummer, <laughs> dizzy bat was not a dizzy bat. Yeah, not a game people could play. But that's kind of it, right? And and this is all you know. As we talked about in the uh, in the insulin episode, these are all um, they all exist on a spectrum between ludus and Paidea, right? That that you outlined mm-hmm. before of Paidea being the freest, most childlike play, and then ludus being the most rule based kind of kind of thing. So. Uh, you know, uh, I don't know, playing Cops and Robbers, most Paidea version of Mimicry versus uh, Hamlet, and no one can break from the blocking uh, or the script on
1: the Ludus side. Right, and um, this is also something worth pointing out is that he says you know many games um, and even like especially the the so- the social institutions and kind of the activities that surround games because this is also something that he's really interested in are um, sort of like the the social institutions of games um, combine these various things, uh, and then certain other things like just cannot combine at all. So for instance, um, like Aegon, which is uh, just incredibly rule bound, right? It's all about like this team and that team or this person and that person. And these are the actions you can take like chess or something, um, does not mix well with I links, right? Which is kind of the obliteration of all rules, right? It's the obliteration of the ability to even pay attention to rules. Um, and then, so I think it's like I links and mimicry are less rule bound. Um, I links is like totally like, it just destroys rules. Um, Mimicry, as you just sort of pointed out, can have it can be less rule bound or more rule bound, um, and then Aaliyah and um, Aegon kind of tend toward the more rule based kind of play.
0: Yeah, it's it's interesting the uh, relationship between ILinks and Aegon that he points out. Uh, mm-hmm. A few years ago, before GDC, Tommy Roos put out this pamphlet that I like wrote a page like basically he put a call out to several people to write uh, about games of iLinks just in general mm-hmm. and to write the rule set for a game of iLinks um and so i wrote about the uh the i forget what the name of the game is weirdly enough but where you put your hand on a table and you like put a knife in between your fingers really fast
1: oh yes uh, the game that bishop plays in aliens there we go yes exactly i just <laughs> I believe that's i believe that's the technical term bishop's game
0: <laughs> yeah um but so i wrote about that game which which is uh which is an interesting one, but also like any drinking game. So like Johnny 40 hands (laughs) where you duct tape 40s to your hands. (laughs) Johnny 40 hands is my favorite creepy (laughs) pasta. (laughs) It's my favorite SCP. Um, But, uh, but like any of those, uh, any of those kinds of things are very interesting to me because they are, uh, rules. They are very strict agonistic rules to get you to the place where Ilinks takes over, right? And that's not something he he is ever very he's interested in. He's not interested in games as a transportation process from one to the other. He mm-hmm. tends to really care about two things happening at one time, and that's how he determines if they're compatible or not. Not right. can one follow from the other. Um, you know, something like. Uh, I forget what it's called, but like what the technical term is, but where you get a random character in League of Legends, whatever that's called. Oh, yeah. I don't remember what that's called either, but I know what you mean. They also have them like as brawls and Heroes of the Storm or Mm -hmm. just any random character mode. Overwatch has that as well, right? Right. Um, But that seems to me when he he starts talking about the combinatorial possibilities of all these things. Um, You know, he says Aegon and pure randomness uh, sometimes are okay, but sometimes that's deeply frustrating and anger inducing and things like that. And I (laughs) I think about how a lot of contemporary games have that built in as a mode of generating novelty, even if the game mode is not fun or competitive or engaging, really. It's just to give you more stuff.
1: Yes. And I think, um, sort of occasionally stopping to like talk about like video games or digital games, I think is, is interesting because, um, precisely because of what you're pointing out, right. Which is that, uh, in, in weird ways, digital games are really good at complicating the models that he is trying to build. Yeah. Um, for reasons that I I don't necessarily know, but maybe we can talk about them. um, this chapter we're nearly done with it uh it concludes uh for him with his first kind of weird uh uh cultural tangent um where he starts talking about uh quote-unquote classical china um where paidea did not develop into ludus um at least in the european sense of that term uh because uh what he calls purposive innovation uh, whatever that means was not as important as the the Chinese concept of wan, which is, and I'm quoting him here again, calm, patience, and idle speculation. Um, I don't really, I mean, I, I sort of know what this means, right? This is kind of an old orientalist way of thinking about about Eastern um, e- Eastern cultures in Asia as. Uh, less concerned with kind of like affecting the world and and more about sort of like contemplating it and living in harmony with it or something. Um but yeah, no, so like this just happens. <laughs> yeah. And he says, I think I
0: wrote the quotation down. Uh yeah. So he says the example, so he lays out one and kind of like how it as a concept complicates all of the, the classifications he's made and mm-hmm. then he says, this is the quote the example of the word Juan shows that the destinies of cultures can be read in their games right, so if, if there is I think an orientalist like push at the end it is precisely that, right? Yes because what we can read in that sentence is that European success and colonization came on the back of, of properly interpreting mm-hmm. or properly uh, socializing all of these um game like classifications and the enclosure and and um breaking of china basically during the colonial period is the product of their uh the
1: corruption of wan i mean that seems to me to be the ethic of the statement here right right no absolutely like uh, the, the Europeans uh, perfected uh, ludus, right? The the idea of of rules, and this also, and we'll get to this by the end of the book. Um, this folds into a lot of his very interesting ideas about uh, like what society is and what society should do.
0: <laughs> yeah, and, and so maybe maybe here is the place to like to just kind of address the chicken or the egg question that the game produce, or not game, but that the book produces. and um, never really solves, right? So. Play exists universally for him. Mm-hmm. These categorizations of games exist to some degree universally, and then sometimes they intersect with cultures, right? Mm-hmm. Do these classifications of games on the spectrum of Ludus and Paideia, do they produce culture? Like, is, is culture a secondary effect from them? Or mm-hmm. is culture like the, the soil from which they grow? Mm-hmm. And that is that is a question that is not resolved in this book. (laughs) No, but would seem to it either proves his it either proves like West is best, Europe is amazing because they did it right, or it disproves that. Right, Right. it's only one or the other. There's there's not a a
1: a both and here. Right, and I don't know what to do with it. No, me either, and especially um, because. One of the things, um, and he comes back to this kind of a couple times rhetorically, uh, one of the things he's trying to uh, do is redress what he thinks is um, the way previous historians and sociologists or whatever you want to call yourself, other intellectuals, um, have uh, sort of underestimated how important games are to culture, um, that they see an... I don't know, I remember which chapter this is, but like basically one of the things he he talks about later, right, is that a lot of his contemporaries um, and the people who have come before him see play as kind of a a degenerated form of an adult activity. Mm -hmm. Um, And he's trying to flip that in some way and say like, no, play is the uh, kind of instinct from which culture itself arises. Except sometimes then like somehow culture for him solidifies and then, you know, then then your play doesn't change anymore.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It. It. The whole thing just seems to be this kind of aeroboros of claims, mm-hmm. which is like the good things happen because of the way that games were instantiated in good ways. The bad things happen because the ways that games were instantiated in bad ways. But there's no way of determining, for as far as my read of the book is, there's no way of determining where good and bad come from, external right. to this loop. Right. Right. Um, and so when Europe I mean the the implicit thing in all of this is that Europe has successfully managed a lot of these things and that has produced the success of I think France in particular for him mm-hmm. um, but it is unclear if that is because just games worked out for them or if there's like a cultural push outside that fueled the proper uh, manipulation of games or why European game culture was able to destroy and colonize other game cultures. And like outside of games, we have reasons for this. Like we have very (laughs) explicit, right. It has to do with like rapid expansionism. It has, it has to do with like the development of technologies of oppression in very specific ways with an immense amount of money behind it. Right. Like we have the history of, of global capitalism, right. Right. Um, To, to tell us why this happened. And if, if as deep as you can go is an analysis of games, it just seems to me that you can't get deep enough to find real explanations.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So. Yeah. So, I agree, right? And uh, he doesn't really take this up again, I think, probably until the second half of the book because, first, what he wants to do is uh, talk very briefly about uh, the social function of games. And do you want to cover that, Cameron?
0: Yeah, sure. So, he... I, I, I'm actually not quite sure why this is its own chapter. It's very short. It's, it's like very short. Like seven pages or something. Um, and, and his whole point here, quite literally, is just that there are... There's a unifying effect that happens when games occur because games are not games and play never happen in a vacuum or in the mind of a single human being. So like I wrote the quote down at some point, he says a play is not merely an individual pastime. Um, and then later he says, these are kind of like the two big quotes I pulled out from the chapter. He says, games generally attain their goal when they stimulate an echo of complicity. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this is also where he kind of talks about games as a disciplining apparatus, yep. meaning that they create a social relationship And they solidify that social relationship. And Mm -hmm. at scale, that begins to create societies.
1: Right. Um, And later... Oh, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, so like, I mean this is something as simple as like one person goes to the park and starts flying a kite and then they are joined by another person who is flying a kite. And then suddenly you have half a dozen people flying kites and maybe they're doing a little competition or something, but then you get people who are watching the people flying kites and suddenly you have a reason for there being a park, right? Like that, that kind of social bonding.
0: Yeah. And this is going to be like, why? I mean, so, so I, I'll tell a, a story from my own teaching. This is from years and years ago. Um, So it was after the Super Bowl. Um, I don't remember and I might not have known at the time who was playing in the Super Bowl that year, but this is probably like 2013. Something like that. I go and I teach class the next day. There are people who are wearing various Super Bowl attire. You know, they're wearing shirts from the team that won. And two of my students got into a small discussion that quickly became an argument over whether X team should have won over Y team. And it it didn't come to blows. It wasn't that level of, of fight. But people began screaming at each other very quickly. <laughs> and this is what he's talking about in the sense of there are two teams on a field somewhere that have an agonistic relate. You know, it's Aegon, pure team mm-hmm. versus team. And then a system of mimicry is set up from fans who begin to see uh, themselves as part of that conflict, and then that echoes out across all of culture so much that a thousand miles away or more, in my classroom, two people can feel like they are part of that through the the quality of mimicry. They feel like they are part of that agonistic relationship and need to yell at each other about it.
1: Right. And, and that creates society. Is... Yes, that creates society, and it also, I think, weirdly enough, leads to what he calls the corruption of games, which mm-hmm. is the very next chapter. Um, which is, in short, right for for Kawah, um, a game is corrupted when kind of its idealized nature—that the thing that sets it apart from reality—gets um, blurred into what he calls the insidious laws of daily life.
0: Yeah. So. The, the benefit, quote unquote, the beneficial part is that those people can identify strongly with their favorite quarterback, right? Mm-hmm. Right. The problem is that they begin to identify too strongly with their favorite quarterback. <laughs> and and, and he's, he doesn't do a very good job, I, I think, of demonstrating when it trips over into bad, right? This is another you know, instance of where good and bad become these sort of external values injected into a system that theoretically is producing them. But mm-hmm. we, I don't know if we have like a judgment system for, for parsing
1: them out. Right. No. So like, uh, the other way that he puts it right is that the game becomes uh, quote contaminated by the real world in which every act has inescapable consequences. So, yeah. um, you know, when, when, uh, play cannot be sort of free and associative, uh, because you are required to play, you are forced to play for some reason. And the thing is you can be forced to play for so many reasons. Um, yeah. and, and it, like what happens, right, is like the polarity of the game reverses, uh, like, uh, what should be for, for Kawa, like the, the thing that is attractive about games is that the world is essentially kind of chaos. Um, there's a lot of stuff going on. And when you play a game, you can sort of bracket everything and be like, here are the clear rules by which I will operate for the, you know, short time that I'm playing this game. Um. Except then, what happens is that you are suddenly compelled to to uh, obey these rules, even when you don't want to. Right? They become a part of of the outside world that is uh, acting on you. Uh, and uh, so, one really great example of this, right, is. Um, Speaking of capitalism, right? The the professional player, whether that's the athlete or um, the uh, the theater actor um, or even you know film actor now, right? Um, that's a that's an example that he brings up again and again and again is uh, people who play for a living, right? Sort of professional performers, uh, like they are they are playing, but they are not playing in the sense that the, that this is play for their audience for their spectators. Um, And I think that's really interesting, because there he's actually anticipating a a performance theorist uh, named Nicholas uh, Rideout, um, who is currently active. I don't know where he is exactly, somewhere in the UK. Um, But he has a really great book called Stage Fright, I believe. Um, And one of the things he talks about in in that book um, is, well, basically his, his what he wants to do in that book is talk about all of the ways that theatrical performance goes wrong. Hmm. Um, so like when the actor gets stage fright or when you have an animal on stage and the animal doesn't act the way it's supposed to. Um, uh, you know, these are, so there's like all of this sort of conventional theatrical wisdom, right? You don't work with children. You don't work with live animals. You don't put a clock on stage um, because all of these are things that are going to, you um, you know, sort of go against the illusion of, of the theatrical play. Mm -hmm. Um, and right out the way that he thinks about this is he says, these are really problems because what they do, at least in the modern context, because he's primarily interested in sort of post 17th century theater. Um, what these things do is uh, they they remind you that you are engaging in capitalism. <laughs> hmm. um, when when the actor gets stage fright, you don't see you know this fun thing; you see someone not doing their job, and suddenly you feel guilty because what you want is for them to do your job or for them to do their job and to not have to think about the fact that they're doing a job.
0: Hmm. Right. You, you
1: want the whole whole world to be a, uh, a like a Halloween haunted house event. Right. And like the animal is, um, you know, anxiety producing for similar reasons, right? Because it cannot conceive of kind of the labor relation of the performer and therefore doesn't respect it. (laughs) Um so yeah no 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 so uh what i thought was really interesting um when kawa talks about that right um is that he is very much anticipating this this sort of strand of performance theory uh that is totally about not necessarily the corruption of games but sort of um the things that uh, we quote unquote like tend to not put in plays because they ruin the illusion of the play itself
0: yeah, I like in a related way, but in a different kind of arena. I was thinking about um, how, you know, like Ninja, the streamer Ninja, maybe mm. two months ago said, you know, he took four days off of streaming or something, and it cost him like 40 grand a day. Oh, um, yeah. People can people can look this up to get the exact amount, but basically he was like, listen, you know, here are my numbers. I took a long weekend and I lost X tens of thousands of dollars. And I was thinking about that, that that kind of professional streamer culture is also a part of this, right? Because it's, mm-hmm. they are ostensibly the reason you are tuning in is to watch people have fun and, and to get that kind of spectatorial uh, experience that he thinks is very valuable and kind of um, echoity, right? Like it produces, mm-hmm. uh, it produces a society, right? Around play. Um, and that, that happens to some degree, and I think that's, in fact, why why things like Twitch, uh, or just platforms that allow for certain kinds of toxicity to spread, that's precisely what's happening there, right? Is that there's a mm-hmm. per- particular mode of, of spectatorship, and then eventually what he calls identification, that uh, is hurting um, the social in a broader way. But... Right, like, the idea is we're supposed to be watching Ninja and be like, look how good this dude is playing the game, look how good of a time he's having, and the whole time in his head, he is just thinking of how much money he is, how long he's having to play to reach the amount of money that he's trying to get for that day, right? Yeah. And he's the number one, or was, or, you know, is in the mix, we're the number one streamer in the world, and it's the same type of corruption of play that you're talking about as well. Mm-hmm. um because it's not it's just work right it's 100 percent right. just work but using even all of the uh affective and emotional things that normal play that virtuous play would mm-hmm. would still have in it so it's interesting what about uh what about mystery <laughs> i see we both wrote well, down about <laughs> uh, all the all the things about
1: mystery in here and superstitions Oh, yeah. So, um, something that I want to touch on um, probably later when we can get to those chapters is uh, uh, for uh, for Kawa. Uh, so, there are various ways that uh, the different types of games will get uh, corrupted, right? So, like, Aegon, which should be kind of like uh, in theory, right, level competent like fair competition, right? There's a level playing field. Everyone is kind of starting in the same position. It's like chess, right? Mm-hmm. Ideally, it's two people playing chess and they both have about the same knowledge of chess as a game and they play against each other. Um, uh, when Aegon gets uh, corrupted it becomes like sort of a-, a pure Darwinian society, right? Like everyone is just competing constantly uh, he, like, basically people are given over to what he calls their natural avidity, right? People aren't care. People don't care about being fair. They only care about competition and winning and gain. Um, so, uh, mimicry, uh, which we've already talked about, right, uh, gets corrupted when it becomes alienation, right? So you like the simulation, the thing that you're pretending as if. Um, become suddenly more real than what you think is what you think should be real. Um, mm. So you you get estranged from yourself in some way. Um, and then the corruption of Aaliyah is uh, superstition, right? And this is like the, the way that gambling um, goes over to superstition in the sense that, uh, you know, a professional gambler will often, and I say often as if I know many professional gamblers, right? But this is sort of the <laughs> stereotype. Mm-hmm. Uh, the professional gambler will have like um, a lucky pair of shoes or a thing that they do before they throw the dice, right? They will have little ticks or little tricks, um, things that have nothing to do with the game itself. Um, because for Calwa, right, uh, gambling is supposed to be this kind of um, prostration before uh, a sort of indifferent form. Right, like I give myself over to the decision of this roulette, roulette wheel, and I know for a fact that the roulette, roulette wheel does not care about me. <clears throat> yeah, and I
0: think similar things are happening. Although this complicates what he is talking about. I mean, it's the same mm-hmm. thing as like a playoff beard for baseball right. or something, right? The, the recognition that there is spin on that ball that is outside anyone's control, and and you don't need to change your socks
1: so you get the correct spin, right? right so that's the, that's the corruption of aliyah for him right is that um suddenly you begin to think like well what if i do this will that help what will the impersonal force respond to me then um from the depths i cry out to thee O oh lord yes
0: <laughs> with, with my lucky pair of socks
1: <laughs> um and then of course the the corruption of ilinks is is addiction right and this is where he talks about the ants that love to get high <laughs> you, and you literally i'm looking at your notes right now and you say you wrote
0: some ants love to get high yep just a fact <laughs> right? right i think i oh no i didn't i didn't write down i wanted to write down an ant getting high quote to read it but but i did not do that I actually tried to look these ants up. That he, so he talks about several different species. Yeah, I couldn't find them. I tried to look them up, too. I did. I also couldn't find them, and I wonder. I wonder. You're making these ants up, bro? Mm-hmm. you making up Lycaon Arion? <laughs> Myrmica Levinotis? Right. Like,
1: yeah, all I found when I was searching for them was just uh, references to this book. So mm-hmm. Yeah, same. Uh, I don't know. Um but anyway, right? Like, this isn't what games are supposed to do. They shouldn't be corrupted. They are supposed to uh, sort of uh, discipline and institutionalize what are what, uh, sort of innate human or animal instincts, right? So uh, ideally, what games are going to do is they are going to uh, take these inclinations that people already have and funnel them towards some sort of social good. And the corruption of games is when uh, that suddenly flips and all of those inclinations uh, deconstruct themselves and become unhealthy.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, and it's interesting that, you know, at the end of this chapter, I think some very broad and strange claims get made that Mm -hmm. that i like wrote the quotations down for so the first one is he is like calling out brechtian style alienation like the not the positive form of it but the negative form of it Mm -hmm. um like the the of becoming alienated and not the productive way of alienating but so Mm -hmm. so this is a quotation um The corruption of mimicry follows a parallel course that is produced when simulation is no longer accepted as such. When the one who is disguised believes that his role, travesty, or mask is real, he no longer plays another. And there's like a sentence, and then, It is properly called alienation. So this is like when um, a child star begins to believe that they are truly the center of the universe. Right. right, right. And that's like a social effect, and it's deleterious to that person, and it's not that person's fault. But nevertheless, like, Corey Feldman begins to believe that he is the center of the social universe,
1: Right, or as as Lacan puts this, right, the madman is the king who really believes he's king.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: Damn it! Um, Damn it! <laughs> I let I let Oedipal go at the very yeah. beginning of the show, and I shouldn't have. I've opened the door. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I'm actually going to talk. I'm going to touch on that later because he talks about um, celebrity culture in a way that. Uh, is relevant because of the, the way that the, the king, the mad king, or the, a madman is a king who believes he's a king, um, is very relevant to Shakespearean drama um, because this is uniformly a thing uh, that Shakespeare does, is present bad kings as kings who do not doubt their own kingship. Mm, I, I did see that in your in your notes. The yeah.
0: the other thing I wanted to just note here really quickly too, is that he also says that basically modern warfare in general <laughs> yeah. is a byproduct of the fact that we don't have properly agonistic games. Um, that for whatever yeah. reason they have been corrupted, and it. So this is the quotation, and and so I have a question that I wrote afterward that I think that is what's being alluded to. So he says, War is far removed from the tournament or duel, i.e. from regulated combat in an enclosure, and now finds its fulfillment in massive destruction in the massacre of entire populations. Which makes sense to me. Like, this is a you know in European and American warfare from the 1650s up until the 18 late 1800s you had standards of warfare right mm-hmm. um, and this is like the you know what gets pointed to in American history all the time of the reason that the Americans win the revolutionary War over the British is that the Americans don't abide by the rules of combat, basically, right? Right. Um, and this is also the reason that w- why we can model, uh, you know, through war games or whatever, deterministic war games, how we can model the Napoleonic Wars is that there are very strict regiments that worked in very particular ways that had particular goals. And so you can kind of gamify that. Yeah. But And when that breaks down, he's saying, there is uh, the, the kind of disciplinary function of the game. When that isn't working, then you end up with bigger, more destructive events the massacre of entire populations mhm so this is the question I wrote
1: is Kel Waugh saying that the corruption of games led to the holocaust he kind of seems to be gesturing toward that to be honest yeah
0: right like that's the only it, this is 1958 what is the mm-hmm. other major in his in his time period what is the other major massacre of entire populations that's going on I don't think he's talking about Algeria. <laughs> no. Which he could be,
1: right? But I don't think that's what he's all about. No, based on sort of what I get of him, no. And like, yeah, no, it's it's very, it's a very odd thing to say, right? It kind of takes almost too literally the, I think, fairly old idea of, of recreation and sports as kind of, you know, that social release valve. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, to the point where it's like, well, Okay, so is the is is the result here we need to have like an Olympics every month or something is that going to going to stop us from doing genocides? Yeah, I mean that's the question, right? If right. if these good or bad things from outside the loop are just being injected
0: into it. Yeah, do we just need like better sport or something? So anyway, I don't I don't think that is resolved in any way, but it's moments like these where the claim is brought to it's like most logical or most extended conclusion that I am most confused about
1: what he is actually producing in this book. But now we have all of that out of the way and we can get toward what I think Cal um, Wa is really what I think he, he is aiming at for this book. Like what he what he wants to produce, um, which is not just like, here's a neat taxonomy for describing games, right? What he wants is chapter five toward a sociology derived from games. Yeah. Um, and so I already touched on this, right? But um, uh, for him... Uh, most other sort of historians and sociologists and thinkers um, when they talk about games so even so for instance like uh, these are the very gendered examples that he uses a couple times right? Um, a little boy playing with uh, like toy machines or vehicles um, or sport, like playing rough, ho- like rough housing and playing sports or something or a little girl playing with dolls um, these uh, for him, right, he's saying all other other thinkers, other writers have seen these as sort of um, uh, dilutions or degradations of actual adult activities, mm-hmm. right? That like uh, people like these kids are seeing things that their parents do, and therefore those are the things that they want to do, right? Because it's just it's like a almost travesty or burlesque of actual serious real activity, um, and he wants to flip that and say, no, what these kids are doing are preparing like yeah. their their play instinct is a uh, like getting them sort of habituated to the things that they will have to do or will want to do later in
2: life
0: hey everybody it's the halloween friend here uh thanks so much for listening to this episode um just giving you a little mid episode bumper for the patreon if you enjoy the show and you think it is cool why don't you think about giving us a dollar or three dollars or five dollars a month over on the patreon uh it helps us buy the books that keeps this going and it helps cover our hosting costs and all the labor that we put into it and we put in a whole lot of time uh into the show um there's a fun little easter egg that's going to show up later in the episode and at the end of the show we didn't quite have it ready yet so I just want to say thanks so much to Jack, uh aka Hendrickstrog. Go down to the description below to uh, click on Jack's uh uh link to their uh twitch profile and things like that. Uh it's a very fun little little audio thing. You'll you'll know it when you hear it. Um other than that, just you know, thanks so much for listening to this episode. You know, we got to give this little thing. We also say at the end of this episode that there's going to be t-shirts soon for Range Touch. So if you want to support the network, uh there's going to be a way for you to do that very soon uh in a way that puts a logo on your body. Um so thanks so much uh for checking out this episode. I uh, hope you like listening to us talk about Calwa. You can hear uh, me and an audio bumper some other time. Hopefully next episode. Hopefully you heard it in the last episode. Anyway, bye. Yes, and I think that this is a good, good place for me to kind of talk about the Calwall history stuff. Okay. Um, if only. So, so as I said at the top, right? So uh, he's part of this group um, called the College of Sociology that exists in France during the late 1920s through the 1930s and this is a group that he co-founds uh with two other people formally but really three other people um so it is calois it's Georges bataille uh who who is kind of like a famous uh you know theory person mm-hmm. also similarly in sort of pseudo-anthropology or in sociology. Um, Michel Leerie who's like a, he was an author, a, a writer, and then Colette Pignon, who was uh, not a formal founder, but was involved in in everything that they did. Mm-hmm. And so eventually it gets, it comes to a head. They, they found this group, they do all these um, events together. They uh, have these symposia, they publish things. They're also involved in this group called SFAL, uh, literally headless, and the idea is that, you uh, they would go into the woods and like reenact these pre-modern European rituals that, that was like (laughs) the, the gist behind it. But that, that was kind of like the shadow organization of, of what was going on in the college of sociology. But, um, I, I, I want to read this if only to give a sense of like what Calwa was after in his big broad project okay so this is okay. a section this is a paragraph from uh, Milo Swedler's The Dismembered Community which is kind of a book about Colette Pignan, uh, and it's a book about this group of people in particular so um, he, wrote, he writes this in his foreword to the College of Sociology uh, this guy Paulier brings to light a schism between Kawa Cal- and Bataille Whereas for the former, for Kaua, the sacred place is the cathedral or the pyramid. For the latter, it is the bedroom. This schism (laughs) is all the larger if one takes into account Hollier's commentary. For Kaua, a place is sacred to the extent that it has no room for a bedroom. In contrast to Kawa, whose conception of the sacred community is, propo- is founded on the exclusion of sexual communication, Bataille proposes a notion of the sacred founded on precisely the sort of communication that takes place in the bedroom. So I, so when we talk about uh, what's valuable in games and what's valuable in like a sacred sense for Kawa, it is about this kind of like um, the preparation for the big sacred ritual that is not... Uh, th- it's about something bigger right it's not about the dirty you know the communication of the bedroom or the bathroom as it were uh it's about a bigger thing right which is why preparation and like ritual here as you're as you're talking about become important Mm
1: -hmm. right no and i was i was going to ask you actually about the the batai stuff because um especially in sort of the earlier chapters there was a lot of a lot of things that he said that reminded me of Bataille uh, about sort of like play as a sort of you know profitless expenditure, mm-hmm. um, and at the same time very much unlike Bataille in that uh, all of all of this stuff that you're doing for no reason is actually for a reason. Yes, exactly. And for Bataille, yeah, there's just it's just a big uh, energy
0: bucket that we've got to process through. So so uh, this is also. Uh, pertaining to something that you just read, here's the other quotation that I pulled out from this book. Um, so in 1939 they break apart. So they, there's a fundamental schism that that occurs between Kawa and Bataille. I don't think they actually talk to each other for a number of years after this, if I remember the rest of the book. Um, but but uh, this is what he, what um, Sweedler writes. Uh, As proposed in the preceding chapter, polemics between Bataille and his co-founder and co-director of the college, Kawa, over the stakes of the group bring into relief their incompatible conceptions of the group's nature and its purpose. For Kaua, the brotherhood that the College of Sociology both theorizes and embodies exists at the exclusion of sisters. A pure community is for him a community purified of women. Hmm. Full stop. Mm Mm-hmm. So that when we when you were talking about the kind of gendered examples that both that you were just talking about, but in this book yeah. in general, that is tactical.
1: That is purpose, very much on purpose. I was one. Okay, so that's that's good to know because I was wondering because it's it's the sort of thing where this book is old enough where I'd be like, yeah, he just kind of like would probably just accept this, but no, he's he's really going for it. Okay. Yeah. That. Yeah. That. That girls are going to play with dolls
0: right that shows up somewhere in this book and there's no equivalent but in order to prepare them for motherhood right yeah like he is deeply essentialist when it comes to that and yeah for him to some extent women don't get access to the sacred um which has a knock-on effect of all kinds of bad stuff huh yep Yep, yep, yep. Uh, there's also a section in this book, just as an aside. So uh, in for the Asaphal group, they really wanted to go out into the woods and sacrifice someone. That was like a big thing that they had been trying to do. <laughs> and it was easy. So Calwa in one of his, his pieces – oh, no, I'm sorry. Camus, writing later about the group, says uh, that it was easy to find someone who would be willingly killed. That was not the hard part. The hard part was that it was finding someone who would do the killing – and Kau Wah, it was suggested that Kau Wah be the person to do it and he refused. Wow. Yeah. Huh. So, well, it, Roger. That, yeah, that's in the side, but I think an instructive aside that all of his friends were like, yeah, uh, Roger could kill people. <laughs> 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 I think he'd be able to do it, and he was like, I don't, I don't know you
1: guys, but Yeah. All right, yeah, so this is um, the the sort of latter half of, of this particular chapter is is uh, sort of Kawawa uh, thinking about um and he gets into this much more in in the next couple chapters right but thinking about the way that uh what we think of as play just to sort of recap um in some ways uh has has an it is it is an echo of of older ideas of sacred and ritual Mm -hmm. um and what i think is sort of troubling for him is that at a certain point there's an inability to distinguish between these two things he wants to say that there are certain societies where play and and ritual are are very much bound together Um, and so like one example he uses is uh um quote-unquote vedic india Uh, and I, he, he actually has multiple examples here and they're all drawn from various cultures and I have no idea how accurate any of them are or how well he's representing any of them, but I just note this one because it's the idea of, um, someone on a swing, uh, like using a swing to, uh, like help the sunrise... Right, this idea of um, the movement of the swing in some way is is a kind of like sacred ritual that corresponds to uh, the movement of, of celestial bodies mm-hmm. right and um, and he says, you know, what happens over time in culture is that what 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 are what things are sacred, like swings, <laughs> um, become evacuated of their sacred uh, properties and become play as we understand it. So the 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 swing that helps the sun rise becomes a children's swing on a playground, or um, sort of the you know cultures where uh, rituals with masks and symbols um, and sort of ornate processions and things like that uh all of the all of that in sort of like pre-modernity or like early ancient and classical history that all gets evacuated of its sacred quality and we think of masks as things you wear on halloween right Mm -hmm. or things that you wear when you're like having fun and goofing off right for us masks are supposedly not uh sacred in in kind of the older ceremonial way
0: yeah, that that there, uh, there's a weird move, there's a weird double move that happens, right? Where uh, currently existing groups that do that are they have better access to the sacred, but they are like quote unquote primitive. Mm-hmm. And And the groups that have moved beyond that have done a good job and they are less primitive, but they have lost the sacred, right. Right, and it's like uh, so. Some people get like patronizingly valorized, and some people get uh, told that they're bad based on yes. this weird double movement that happens at the same time. Right, hmm.
1: hard to be right in the eyes of of the law here. Yes, <laughs> right, and so this is where he moves into the 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 second part of the book. Right, which is. Uh, mm-hmm play and games variations uh the first part i don't know if we named it was just called play and games theme oh um, uh, hold on we ha- we have your i just noticed your your note
0: here oh okay of the biggest yikes of the book
1: oh yes
0: oh oh yes mm. i'll read i'll read the quotation here i'm pretty sure this is the one you're talking about <laughs> uh in as much as i am also convinced that there exists precise interrelationships of compensation or connivance in games, customs, and institutions, it does not seem to me unreasonable to find out whether the very destiny of cultures, their chance to flourish or stagnate, is not equally determined by their preference for one or another in the basic categories into which I have tried to divide games. Categories that are not equally creative. hmm So if you are overinvested, this is the, where he, he gets to in the next couple chapters, right? If you are over-invested in mimicry and shamanism, you mm-hmm. are not as creative as a culture than, some, than a culture that is invested in Aegon and elea Yep. And that means your destiny is different. Mm-hmm. And underneath that, he's really saying it's your destiny to be colonized. Yep. Absolutely. And so just just to, like, render this very clear, like, from my perspective, right, why I think it is important for us to, like, read the entirety of this book <laughs> is that it, it, the, the categories of games that we teach from this book, in general, in game studies, are dependent on this idea. <clears throat> and so I think maybe if you're only teaching the categories of games argument, you are smuggling in. Some ideas about the creativeness of
1: certain cultures and the creativeness of, and the uncreativeness of other cultures. Yep. When you do so. Whatever exactly creativeness means to him, um, but like I think I think your read on it is good, right? Is like creative cultures don't get colonized, they do the colonizing. Um. <laughs> yeah, I mean I, mean, I think but, that yeah. that's made much more explicit too in
0: the next couple chapters, but in in not taking the argument of the entire book seriously as a unit. Mm-hmm. and only pulling out that one chapter that has all of these assumptions built into it kind of clearly being signaled, but you don't know what they're signaling until you read the rest of the book. It just seems to me like this is a a much more dicey book to... A, a dicey set of arguments to introduce without a lot of context mm-hmm. is, is what I'm saying. But yeah, it is a real yikes, I think.
1: Yeah, so uh, like, as, as making that very clear, right, this next half of the book is, I mean, just frankly going to get kind of racist and not really kind of a uh, pretty racist. Uh, yeah. In, ter- in terms of um, the way that he is talking about other cultures um, because he starts talking, he, so really in the next chapter, uh, immediately after that kind of weird proclamation about uh, societies being not equally creative. Um, this is when he really starts talking about the conjunctions of different types of games um and where he's really gonna make his hay with that uh, that um claim about creative cultures, um is how they tend toward, as you already put it, right, the the um they tend toward combinations of Aegon and Aaliyah rather than mimicry and eyelinks. Mm-hmm. Um so there's a very stark dichotomy uh here. Yeah, absolutely.
0: That because the the relationship between competition and fate means that you can have a stance toward fate that makes you think you can get one over on it right and that, like this is just the classic of the classics of the western tradition going all the way back right this is the the, the iliad and the odyssey straight up right mm-hmm. that there's a set of, of the, the gods have plans for me and in uh, going along with them sometimes i will be rewarded and going against them i will be punished and knowing when to do what is like
1: the the thinking man's problem Right, 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 and I would say uh, what uh, Kawa is sort of getting at uh, with that idea of the creative society—I think that's what he means, right? Is and this is like stepping aside from uh, the the. Colonism stuff Right Uh, It's sort of the he, He has this idea that there are certain cultures that are creative Because that is their mindset Because they look at everything And they can be like Here is the moment where I intervene in history Yes Right, um, and all of the other cultures, all other cultures who aren't this way, are just all along for the ride, apparently. Yeah. So if you
0: were about, I mean, he explicitly makes it about, and I don't remember exactly. It must be in the simulate. Oh, yeah, it's in chapter seven and eight. This argument's yeah. made over those. Those two chapters, but his argument is that if you are invested in eye links and mimicry as a culture, you are going to put on a mask and take drugs and believe that you are speaking as a snake god. I mean, these are ex- explicit answer uh, examples that he's using, and you are not going to see yourself as a properly, in the way that you just put it, a properly historical subject. Right. But if you have an, an investment in in Aegon and elea or competition and chance. And this is the quotation that I think is really helpful for how he sees that. So this is a quote in societies based on the combination of merit and chance. There is also an incessant effort, not always successful or rapid to augment the role of justice to the detriment to that of chance. This effort is called progress. Mm -hmm. So progress is literally the ability to look and see that the world is full of like random events and that you have to, through using Aegon, you have to work your will upon what you can work your will on, and that is justice, and that gives you civilizational progress. Yep. And everyone who doesn't do that is not civilized.
1: I mean, that's, that's right. the argument. Well, and, and weirdly enough, right? He uh, he starts out, and, um, and we can go ahead and just move into chapter seven, right? Mm-hmm. Because we've kind of laid out what he's doing in chapter chapter six uh, you know he he says um, he calls these societies these these societies all these societies that are just totally the same in this way obviously um, he calls them at first primitive but then says he does not like that word and so he decides to call them uh, Dionysian mm-hmm. um, and they are ruled by mimicry and eyelinks so uh, the examples he gives are Australian American or African huh that's an interesting three three civilizations Mm -hmm. whole civilizations to name Um. (laughs) yeah I wonder Uh, what happened to all three of those yeah Um, but then his uh, sort of uh, the, the rule bound societies and this is also sort of like conspicuous for what he doesn't name the Incas the assyrians the assyrians i don't know enough about the assyrians to know what the hell they're doing here uh the chinese or the romans um are are inclined toward aegon and Aaliyah or the rational tendency uh so yeah basically um the the real i think way of recognizing what uh what kawa thinks of as like a rational society seems to be kind of whether or not it has an extensive bureaucratic structure yeah yes (laughs) right like that that really seems to be um, um what it is right because the 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 remainder of this chapter is him sort of like doing some really weird and bad you've already mentioned some of them about like the snake god and whatever um Right, these like basically uh, shamanistic uh, rituals uh, and sort of reliance on warrior castes and things like that. These are all what mark the, the society as Dionysian or primitive. Um, and uh, then meanwhile, right... a a society is advanced when it has a kind of bureaucracy in place that is intended to promote healthy competition while also remediating uh, the vagaries of individual fortune essentially. Um, and so for the, when, when societies transition, I think this is an interesting thing that he says societies can transition from the, the Dionysian or primitive state into the, the rational or modern state or whatever. Um, when they do that, the the shamanistic impulse becomes allegorical, and he says Plato is an example of that. Okay, yeah, I, I thought don't. that was really yeah. Like, I think I think it's really weird for him to be like Plato, right? And sort of like the the foundation of of Western philosophy or whatever is like he's like the remainder of of the shamanistic impulse for like for like western philosophy i guess right like i don't know i think that's a really weird tactic to take right to make that distinction and be like plato just plato wasn't a shaman plato had no religious inclination (laughs) Yeah, he very much did
0: yeah i don't know what is i yeah i don't know what the claim is about i mean it's it's something to, to, to kind of hear you recount it this is something i did not write down because i wasn't mm-hmm. i didn't think about it yeah but especially your point about bureaucracy and like uh the creation of governmental structure that minimizes risk or chance it's mm-hmm. just liberalism like he's yes. just saying that the proper civilizations are liberal states Oh yes, absolutely. That's it. Right? Like, like it is. I did. I, I guess I just did not come to that conclusion until, like, literally just hearing you walk through it. It just seems so, like, so limited to me, right? Because right. the the way that he conceives of all of these like uh, Dionysian uh, civilizations and groups is he only looks at their like very finite religious practices to determine mm-hmm. what those groups are. He doesn't look at like. What kind of, you know, the range of land that they ruled over, or the groups that they were in cooperation with, or any of those kinds of things, right? I mean, if you just look at Indigenous American groups in the United States, these are massive, uh, bureaucratically formed groups, right? They they don't have the right. same no, thing, they,
2: but
1: <laughs> I mean, it's not liberalism, but it is. All of these We're, systems of regulation, like, right? Like, I, yeah, no, like, indigenous peoples are totally getting getting together and politicking, right? Like... Yeah, yes, exactly, <laughs> right? And it's just, like, you know... I mean, I
0: just... Yeah, anyway. Like, <laughs> it, yeah, it just seems like such a limited... It is a limited perspective, and I, and I know that I, myself, earlier, just read sections about why it's a limited perspective, right? Like, he cares mm-hmm. about the sacred. He cares about religion. He's, like, the pseudo-anthropologist, so he's only reading these kind of books of pseudo-religious uh, anthropology. Like, I get how he comes to these conclusions,
1: but they are mm-hmm. so off the mark as to be comical. Yes. Um and uh, something very interesting that I want to point out in in chapter eight, right, is uh, so like to kind of give a broad sketch of the very broad sketch that he gives of, of the uh, sort of historical progression of Europe. Right. Is that it started out as a society um, that was uh, very much. Uh, given over to chance in the sense of um, it was a a caste structure, right? Mm -hmm. You were born into either, you know, the nobility or um, the peasantry or what have you, and you just kind of stayed there. Um, And so, like, a society becomes sort of rational or modern when it steps in and is like, okay, however you are born should not have that much of an effect on where you go in life, right? And so, uh, we get kind of this recapitulation of, uh, the rise of the modern, like Western bourgeois individual, um, because social, stu- social institutions arise that are supposed to like, you know, help you like to offset the circumstances of your birth. Um, the rise of the middle class, right. People who uh, make money rather than are born into it, uh, <laughs> at least ideally, <laughs> um, and, uh, so on and so forth. Right. So, uh, what happens is a society that, um, started out based on the the sort of random chance of birth, becomes replaced with a society that is based on a premise of Aegon, right? Everyone is supposed to be as level as they can, and they all kind of compete for their individual spot in society to the best of their ability, um, their sort of innate ability. Um, however, the core seed of Aaliyah of chance can never ever be eliminated. And this is a problem for him um, because, of course, right, people who accumulate more resources, um, even if they've done that more or less fairly, right, will tend to leave that to their their children, right? And so, therefore, like, one person's Aegon becomes another person's Aaliyah. Mm-hmm. Um, and this makes gambling for Kawa a huge problem um, because uh, it sort of Invalidates the entire ethos of, of good, honest work. Just in one fell swoop, the entire sort of like civilizational principle, right? The idea that like you just compete, right? And society can step in and like take care of you for certain aspects, but then you're on your own and you compete and you do what you can. It just gets thrown out the window by gambling. And so gambling becomes very marginalized. Um, and uh, he talks about then how uh, gambling... Uh, or Aaliyah rather maybe sort of disseminates out into weirder ways into culture right beauty contests, game shows uh, that he says they pretend these, these types of things pretend to award, award individual merit um, but they're really often just up to chance right it's mm-hmm. like are these like what questions did you get that day right uh like what is the particular standard of beauty that the judges in the beauty pageant have um but this leads because of that uh sort of mechanism we've already talked about of mimicry and identification um people start to identify with these very chancy kind of uh spectacles um and basically celebrity culture is bad right (laughs) like this is this is his takeaway um (laughs) And then this other weird thing happens where political figures uh, also become subjected to this kind of thing, right? They uh, become, they are seen as trapped in extremely powerful roles. Uh, just by the circumstances of their birth, right? Oh, woe is me, I have so much privilege and institutional power, um, and all they can do is aspire to abandon that power. And you already mentioned this because you had looked over my notes and um, I got at it with the Lacan thing, but Shakespeare, whenever he is presenting a king who is a bad king, uh, those kings are almost always kings who never question the fact that they are king, mm-hmm. right? They, they believe that they are king. Um, so that's King Lear, right? Uh, to a certain extent, it's Richard II. Um, uh, and then the good kings... Um, insofar as there is a good King in Shakespeare and probably the best King is like Henry the uh, is the King who always has the moment where he steps aside and he's like, God, it sucks being the King. <laughs> <laughs> it sucks having so much responsibility. You know, um, this isn't Henry V specifically. It's, um, I don't remember if it's one or two Henry the fourth, which are the the prequels to that play. Right. But, uh, heavy, heavy lies the head that wears the crown. Right. Mm-hmm. That, that they the tell the story of, of the clone war. Right. Yes, yes, exactly. Right. Um, Yes. So the, the, when when Henry's fighting the clones, he's like, "Man, it sucks to be king." Well, that's how they get Henry Five, <laughs> the fifth clone. Yes, right. <laughs> no, it's 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 how they do the clones in the Star Wars universe, where they just uh, multiply the vowel in the name. <laughs> yeah. So he's like Henry with three H's. Mm-hmm,
0: Luke. <laughs> uh,
1: yeah. Well, I
0: I mean, this is the weird thing too, right, about this that there is this such a focus in this chapter. Uh, on the relationship between like popularity, celebrity, birth, like all these different things. And it, one of his central examples is double or nothing, right? Yes. <laughs> Which is literally just a game of like are these people gonna screw up or not? that you know on television Mm -hmm. um and it allows you part of his critique of it or or his explanation i don't even know if he's necessarily critical of it as an institution but he says like the thrill of the game is has nothing to do with the people in it because you can extend empathy to anyone in a sequence you just want to see them get closer and closer to failing you don't care who they are or what they are you just want to watch them either succeed or fall apart right Um, and I think that kind of interestingly, you know, works in relationship to fictions and things like that. That is that what we're just all about, right? Are we just looking <laughs> for the tragic fall?
1: Right. No, it's <laughs> watching NASCAR races, but only for the crashes. Yeah, he explicitly talks about that, right? He talks right? about stock car yeah.
0: races. Um, yeah. Or, you know, just looking for the injury. I watch a lot of Ninja Warrior. And that's that's <laughs> all it is. So. Uh, so I get yeah I get uh, because that's in his discussion of identification I really like this quote identification is a degraded and diluted form of mimicry to identify with someone is to not really you know to like really give yourself
1: over to mimicking them (laughs) some other thing right Um, yeah so uh, and then he sort of ends this chapter uh, touching on something we've talked about before right which is that the uh uh, the rational societies see history as linear and progressive, um, and for uh, they, they what are they they see themselves as capable of intervening in the mechanism of the world and quote the very adventure of civilization, right? Whereas the the, the Dionysian societies are stuck in kind of like cyclical time, right? Uh, yeah, and this is an old anthropo- anthropological sort of saw about about what quote unquote primitive cultures think.
0: Yeah, a hundred percent. And and even like looking over my notes here, the uh, at the very beginning of the chapter, he says this, uh, just with like the liberalism stuff we were talking about before. And pr- in progress, he says, in fact, in all societies to varying degree, as soon as they have become more complex, there is the opposition between wealth and poverty, glory and obscurity, power and slavery. Um, so quite literally, he's saying that the moment, if you were stuck in that kind of cyclical time of you know, quote unquote, pre-modernity. You don't have access to any of these concepts, even right, mm-hmm. and only then can you like you know think about the justice of getting rid of slavery, right? Uh, despite the fact that plenty of groups across the plenty of groups at all levels of quote unquote levels of development, right, and and massive massive uh, quotation marks around that, but all many groups at many different. Uh, Uh, Formations around the earth Have abolished and embraced slavery (laughs) Like these are not There's no linear progress
1: here Right Um, Yeah and that's sort of well, and speaking of sort of linear progress and maybe problems for it, I actually <laughs> think despite himself, uh, the last couple chapters uh, get into that, especially chapter nine, he calls it revivals in the modern world. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is where he's trying to talk about where uh, where Dionysian um, sort of tendencies uh, like sort of slip back into a, an otherwise like supposedly advanced culture, right? Um and so a lot of this is what you would expect, right? It's things like traveling carnivals and clowns and circuses and so on and so forth. These um, things that can be read pretty easily as sort of maybe vestigial elements of those earlier uh, earlier types of, like, sacred ritual. Dude hates clowns.
0: He does. I did not write down the exact quotation, but he's like, and of course, the, the awful recreation of the craven image that is the clown. Yes. Like, it's that level it's... of, like, hating clowns.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, it's like,
0: it's just so vulgar and gross. And Oh, I'm sorry. It's in a section called The Parody of the Gods. Yes. <laughs> and it begins with, clowns' pranks are innumerable. They depend upon individual caprice and inspiration. There is, however, a kind of clowning that is especially persistent, seeming to attest to a very ancient and solitary human preoccupation. (laughs) The grotesque imitation of a serious mimic by a ridiculous character
1: doing everything in reverse. (sighs) Oh, this reminds me. We forgot to talk about we forgot to talk about my note on chapter seven, which is that the opening couple paragraphs read like the monologue of a Metal Gear solid villain. Let's see if that's true.
2: Boss, before we interrogate this uh gamer Kermit, we need to have a talk. You see, boss, the persistence of games is remarkable. Empires and institutions may disappear, but games survive with this same rules and sometimes even the same paraphernalia. The chief reason is that they are not important and possess the permanence of the insignificant. Human lies a major mystery, for in order to benefit from this kind of fluid and yet obstinate continuity, they must be like the leaves on the trees which survive from one season to the next and remain identical. Games must be ever similar to animal skins. The design on butterfly wings and spiral curves of shellfish which are transmitted unchanged from generation to generation. However, games do not have this hereditary sameness. They are innumerable and changeable. They are clad in thousands of unequally distributed shapes, just as vegetable species are but infinitely more adept, spreading and acclimating themselves with disconcerting ease. Boss, their diffusion does not remain determinate for very long. Yes. Yeah, so, uh,
1: yeah, that's how, that's how Chapter Seven opens. And the entire time I was reading it, I was like, "Wow, this sounds like something Revolver Ocelot would say." Mm-hmm. I. <laughs> so, I, <laughs> this is the other thing about Calwa <laughs> that is this is the other great thing about mid-century writing is sometimes people just say really weird things about games and culture and how horrible clowns are Mm -hmm. yeah you could you could be
0: you could be twitter petty in a 200 page book in 1958 like you could be like clowns are a social evil (laughs) in this essay I will (laughs) and no one I mean maybe someone better than I but I've never read the defense of clowns It's a response to this so
1: no no
0: (laughs) But yeah, this revival chapter is basically just like, uh, interesting moments of quote-unquote pre-modern or Dionysian cultures popping up in contemporary European culture. Mm Mm-hmm. Um... Yeah, I, I wrote, so he actually starts talking basically about video games here without without knowing it, which I think is interesting. Yeah, yeah, no, you got this quote, so yeah, please read that. Yeah, he says uh, games involving glass, special effects, and ghosts all lead to the same result: the creation of a fictional world in desired contrast with the ordinary life that is dominated by the conventional species and from which demons have been banished. <laughs> which is like some real woo. Yeah. Uh, But yeah, so it's like basically... uh, Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't write the whole quotation down. This is the rest of it. Uh, The disconcerting reflections that multiply and distort the shape of one's body, the hybrid fauna, legendary monsters, nightmarish defectives, the grass of an accursed surgery, the sickly horror of embryonic gropings, larva, vampires, automatons, and Martians... (laughs) Uh, Supplement (laughs) on another level The holy physical thrill by which the Vertiginous machines momentarily distort One's sensory stability So basically he's saying like if you play Skyrim You are going back in time Like you are
1: are (laughs) anti-progressive Yes But video games are bad (laughs) <laughs> yeah um and there's a bit uh at one point and this is actually earlier on and i had this in my notes somewhere um but i actually since we're talking about video games and, and the ways that they weirdly fit into the the thing that he is sketching here um at one point earlier on when he's talking about how games are uh, rule-based and make-believe um he also makes a sort of minor point that they tend toward one or the other mm-hmm. um so like uh, and this actually you know this sounds very much like Yule, I think, actually, um, from episode one, where something like chess is very rule-based, and there is sort of ostensibly, like, there is a narrative about, like, what's happening in chess, right? It's sort of the—it's the, the it's a very, very abstracted battle of two armies or two forces, Um but you know you're no one is playing chess for the story <laughs> mm-hmm. um whereas uh you know there are games that are less rule-based uh, but are far more um make-believe uh sort of ready and that's something like traditional theater right uh where the rules are sort of sit in your seat and be quiet and watch what's happening um but in the meantime you can imagine all sorts of crap <laughs> yeah right um so what I think is interesting is that uh you know games as as like games of course right can have uh those variations um you know there are some games like say like Tetris right that is going to be uh, more primarily an expression of a set of rules and versus something like um I don't know, what if I, Kentucky Route Zero, right? That is much more about experiencing that narrative and that make-believe. Um, but also games are, video games, I should specify, um, I think are uniquely positioned to trouble that very division uh, that that he kind of sets up.
0: Yeah, well, it, and if only because, I, it, it's interesting, I was just teaching um, Patrick Krogan's, early essay on Blade Runner, on the Blade Runner video game. And Mm -hmm. he makes the argument that the Blade Runner, the Blade Runner video game, that it's 1997 um, Westwood game. It's like a 2D adventure game. Mm -hmm. He says, he makes the claim that it is quote more Blade Runner than Blade Runner because it, (laughs) it, you know, Blade Runner is about constriction and social condition and who gets to determine who gets to live, things like that. Mm -hmm. And the Blade Runner video game is doing that, but also on a meta level of who gets to construct this world and the rules of the world. Right. You know, this kind of a, a question or a, a, it's a statement and a question that seems very apparent to, to anyone who's like really thinking about video games. Right. Because of course yeah. they're programmed, they have specific capabilities. Um, but that's kind of like a problem that Kawa can't get to right. because in, you know, at the end of the day, any game that is a non-digital game, or 99% of games that are non-digital games, if you would like to suspend a rule, you can just suspend the rule, right? Right. So if knights knights move like pawns now, right? It, right. it would not make chess better, but you can do that. There's nothing to stop you from doing it. Um, and so there's this additional layer of complication and interaction and construction that happens with video games that, yeah, mm-hmm. Kawa can't. Can't deal with i think right he doesn't have the tools he doesn't he doesn't know to know this book doesn't end on like a conclusion no but it it doesn't there's not a conclusion to the book like it's not like and here's what i meant the whole time uh it's just like it just ends by being like yeah sometimes these other forms of game show up in in our forms of game the the end the end. Um, I'm looking, yeah, here in the translator's introduction to see if these are appendices that maybe got added later. Because yeah. the translator does say that uh, that Calwa was, like, helpful with the translation um, mm-hmm. and helped suggest, like, American versions of some of the games. But mm-hmm. it does not say here that uh, that these appendices are new for this or, you know, were written specifically for it. So I don't know. Yeah, they're very strange. The first one is just about...
1: Aaliyah, yeah well and here's actually they're both about aliyah right yes well the second one's about like our approach to (laughs) aliyah right 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 but like that's what's interesting about this is that like sort of revivals feels like it should have been the last chapter sort of and then he's just like and by the way here's two more chapters on this other thing (laughs) yeah
0: here's two more chapters
1: Um, on like things that are complicated yeah so, uh, do you want to start on the, on the first appendix, then? Yeah,
0: sure. I mean, they're just weird. So, like, the only thing I wrote that I thought was particularly interesting about the first appendix, because it really is just about Aaliyah, and it's about working through kind of point by point, perhaps, uh, questions about the context in which Aaliyah emerges, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you right. That, that's a fair uh, distillation. And so, yes. like, in all of these other contexts, Aaliyah keeps showing up. And so he's just trying to, like, get some brackets around how that works. And he talks about this long, like, mathematical Chinese game.
1: Yeah. That's is so hard to follow.
0: Yes. That's also imported as Rifa Shifa
1: in Cuba. Yes. It's, like, a, a different game. Or it's the same yeah. game, but it's an adaptation of the game. Yeah. And, again, like, I don't know how accurate he is in being describing this, but it's, like, and it's so hard to follow. It is like a combination of The Lottery, Bingo, and Mad Libs. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> like, and if you are listening and you just thought, I don't know how those three three things fit together, you're about on the same page as me because I have no idea how this game works,
0: really. <laughs> no, I'm very interested in it. And it is, like, this is a point where, where you would... With a little bit of, like, thinking about colonialism and history, this Mm -hmm. can become a very interesting chapter. I would love for someone to take this appendix and lift it out and just do all the work of explaining why the hell this exists, because you know so we have Cuba we have the importation of Caribbean slave labor that occurs mm-hmm. and then we have a massive influx of Chinese immigrants as like indentured laborers that happens uh, there's a book called the intimacy of four continents by Lisa Lowe that's just about this it's about the Caribbean mm-hmm. it's about four continents all coming together in this weird like capitalist um Swirl moment that happens. And he's pretty explicit about saying, like, yeah, if you want to play this game in Cuba, you're going to have to know, like, very specific local Cuban animals so yeah. that you can identify them. But yeah, I legitimately. It, the appendix is an explanation of one game, and after
1: having read it, I cannot tell you how to play the game. Right. So far as I can understand, and again, this is pro- possibly, probably totally wrong. Um, there are a series of symbols of animals that are drawn randomly. And they are either on individual, like... uh, markers or tokens or something, or there are certain tokens that have certain animals in a certain sequence. Mm-hmm. Um, and these are randomly drawn and basically what you do is you kind of like place your bet that I'm like these are the these are the um, animals that are going to show up in in this particular round. Um, and then whether or not you get them like sort of you know who, who gets them in the closest to the correct order is the person who is the winner. Um, but also there is a kind of interesting like narrative element where, um, there is a kind, like, there's, and again, this is very, very unclear, but there seems to be a kind of, um, reasoning process for people who are very, very familiar with the game who will be like, oh, this animal was chosen, right? This animal was drawn. Therefore, the next animal is going to be this animal because those two types of animals like live in the same climate or something. Mm Mm-hmm. Right. Like there is some sort of real world connection between them. And so that is going to be the next animal in the sequence.
0: Yes. So so like the way that this gets explained, so like this is how Michael is reverse engineering this explanation from what is actually written in the book, because like uh, the banker announces so the banker is like the referee or the person doing the drawing. Mm -hmm. announces a bird pecks and goes away. Nothing is more transparent. The dead fly. The soul of a dead man is comparable to a bird because it can go anywhere. It will in the form of an owl. These are souls in pain, famished and vindictive pecks and goes away. I E causes the sudden death of a living person who is suspicious. It is therefore necessary to play eight the dead man, which is its own like tile. So through, through like this allegorizing and cultural narrative process, that also has numbers involved you are supposed to get from what the announcement is and what the card is that or the the tile is that's drawn that you are supposed to then play the dead man to make an optimal mathematical output for yourself yes it, it is it is i i would love for i'm going to look up youtube videos i guess to see if people play this i would love to learn how to play it yeah although i might um, not have the cultural knowledge necessary yeah
1: uh yeah so i mean that's the first appendix right is just him talking about this game and also something um that uh cal says at the beginning uh is he he thinks um other other sort of scholars working in this area are not paying enough attention to gambling mm-hmm. um which and i've mentioned this before and i actually have a thought on this but i can save it for a second uh the fact that he keeps coming back to gambling it's a point of anxiety for him um But, uh, yeah, so he is basically saying, like, you know, we as scholars, whatever the heck he is calling himself, right, philosopher or just, like, sociologist or what have you, um, need to pay attention to gambling more than we have in the past because, and this is where he goes into uh, the second appendix, right, um, there are these other disciplines, um, psychology and mathematics, especially, that very treat games very seriously and have derived very profitable uh intellectual models from them Mm -hmm. right so that's what um sort of the, the second appendix is about is sort of like uh the ways that uh games are used as models for uh sort of psychological experiments or thought experiments um and also, uh, you know, mathematical uh, approaches to games, which is, you know, from whence we derive a lot of like probability theory and what is called game theory and economics um, as a kind of fusion between psychological and mathematical uh, gambling, essentially.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of this like is familiar to people. Like, if you read through the Estrid Insulin book, uh, or even the Esperule book, you'll see a lot of the same game. So, like, uh, Calwad d- dives back into Schiller. Um, mm-hmm. We see a lot of the same kind of stuff uh, right. happening here. Animal play. Uh, I do think, so, like, two quotations, I guess, from these two things that I think are interesting really quickly. Um, mm-hmm. and, then, and then we can hear your big thought about gambling. Um, yes. So one that just kind of kept coming up in the Discord uh, for for Game Studies Study Buddies that people thought was interesting is this little section about communism and Aegon. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't know why, like literally, so it's like the first 75% of Appendix 1 is about this this game, in, this Chinese game in Cuba, and then it's like two little subsections that are just like, and, and also, and another thing, uh, excuse me. Um, and so the first one's about communism, and he's like... He says, let me find the right thing here. Okay. Um, it may be debated whether it is proper in dividing the revenues of the state to pay each according to his merit or according to his need, but it is certain that payment would not be according to birth or chance. So in communism, it's not because you are the uh, the king's son that you get a house. It's because you need a house. Okay. Whether, mm-hmm. that, whether that works in practical communism or not is beside the point, I think. Uh, the reason is that uh, equality of effort must be unitary, so everyone needs to put in the same amount of effort. Mm-hmm. The criterion of justice is work performed. You know, so what you put in, you get out. It follows from this that a regime that is socialist or communist in character tends naturally to rest entirely upon Aegon. In this, it satisfies, satisfies not only its principles of abstract equality, but also is deemed to stimulate, through the best possible rational and efficient utilization of abilities and skills, the accelerated production of goods, which it regards as, in principle, if not exclusive, vocation. So, the 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 western narrative capital w western narrative about the failures of communism right <laughs> is that because there is no uh, there's you would have no rational self-interest to
1: put in any more than the bare minimum Right. You communism. have no reason to compete. Exactly. You have no reason to innovate, to be creative. Exactly. So for,
0: for those reasons, that's why communism fails, right? There's no reason to put anything into the system because everything is provided for you. But mm-hmm. Kau I think, really beautifully says, no, in fact, it is only competition. It is only your worth being put into the system that produces a system that takes care of you. So he's saying that, in fact, it is the ultimate competitive system. In that you need to provide for yourself and everyone else. Yeah, I think that's a I think that's a powerful defense of communism. Weirdly enough, at the end of this book,
1: and it uh, weirdly enough also connects, I think, to um, the point that I was going to make about why I think gambling is such a um, anxiety for him. Um, precisely because he has this kind of uh, liberal progressive narrative of of the evolution of society right we we start in uh, dionysian or primitive times and gradually the s- society comes to light and we leave behind uh you know shamanism and uh doing a bunch of drugs and speaking to the gods and we become rational actors mm-hmm. um, but he says, uh, you know, earlier that the, the sort of, like, happenstance uh, can never be fully eliminated in, in this sort of society, right? So there uh, is always a kind of element of fate or chance or gambling just by who you are, right? How you are born, you know, uh, what your socioeconomic class is, what your skin color is, although he's not going to talk about that, um, <laughs> uh, but uh, things like that. Um, Really put you in uh, the sort of the wheelhouse of fate, of chance. Um, And this, for him, I think. Results in gambling still existing in these societies because it feeds the sense that, like, if things had just gone differently, if these impersonal mechanistic forces of the universe had worked out in just a slightly different way, I would have a much better life. Mm -hmm. And gambling is kind of the way of recapturing that. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And this ties into something else he mentions, right? Gambling... Is a path to superstition,
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, and superstition is a thing that he associates with the Dionysian culture. So for him, uh, it the, this this weird anxiety that Calwa has about gambling um, is because it is symptomatic of for him, although he does not necessarily recognize it this way as sort of the the. Um, insistent like remaining presence of what he thinks is a kind of historical mode that should by all rights be surpassed. Yeah. Right. Um, so like, uh, you know, and this is also like, this is actually a huge thing in, uh, in English, uh, culture really about gambling, Anglophone culture, because, um, if you go into 16th and 17th century writing about gambling and why it's a sin, um, sort of the, uh, the sense for these writers in this time is that gambling is, is sinful because um, it leads you to think uh, in one mode, right? That you can wrest control of the world from God, right? Mm-hmm. Because of that superstition. And then also once the Protestant Reformation happens, if you're in a, pro- if you're in a, a, a Protestant country, um, the superstition becomes uh, basically a code word for being Catholic, Hmm. So, and that is where a lot of, um, sort of, in, in Protestant countries especially, where good hard work is supposed to be the the center of what you're doing, um, where superstition and gambling and Catholicism and sort of, like, uh, reward through efficacious, like, metaphysical action um, mm-hmm. really kind of, like, collapses this, this whole sort of idea that we were ever modern.
0: <laughs> yeah. And I guess that there is something to the fact that you know he's writing in France he's writing in the post-war period there mm-hmm. there is a decided disenchantment of the world that's going on mm-hmm. um, and yet he keeps kind of drawing on these grand universals of of enchantment basically and, mm-hmm. and the relationship to human enchantment mm, I, yeah I don't I don't have a point to make with that but just to say that like this clearly is such a big concern for his and I guess like of course because he wrote a book about the sacred or you know what I mean like yeah. yeah. But uh, it's interesting that that doesn't appear in its more, I don't like metaphysical form here, right? Yeah. Um, I just punched my mic. I'm sorry. You're just so angry. Yeah. He's mad I was about like, it. Ugh, gambling. <laughs> uh, like, so, gambling. So let me, let's, we'll end our episode here.
1: Well, actually, I guess we'll, we'll, we'll say two things. Uh, did we get any questions for this episode? Uh, we got one question from Daniel Joseph, which is uh, would uh, Calwa like bridge? Uh, yeah, yes, yeah, all right. So maybe we should actually explain for people who, who aren't Dan um, <laughs> what that question is about. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Huizinga hates bridge mm-hmm. to go back to the very beginning of this episode. Yep. I don't really remember why. Do you remember why he hates bridge? The um, card game we're talking about, by the way, yeah, the card
0: game bridge. I think it, it's wasteful. It doesn't do any of the social functions that he thinks games are supposed to be doing. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's a take. It's been it's been a long time, but yeah. I believe that that's part of it.
1: Okay. Well, yeah. So I yes, no, I agree with you. I think Kalwa would be all about bridge. Um,
0: bridge is kind of like the ultimate uh, pure rationalist game. Yeah. Very little chance to it, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Kind of. Deter- it's a deterministic game. So yeah, I think you'd like it. <laughs> there you go, Dan.
1: Uh-huh. Yep.
0: So uh, yeah. Well, so uh, let me ask you my final question then. I have a final okay. question. The last paragraph of the whole book. Okay. Kawa begins. Play is a total activity. It involves a totality of human behavior and interests. Bup, 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 bup yeah just that just those what do you think what do you think of those those two sentences he says some other stuff too but i don't care about that um plays a total
1: activity Mm Hmm. so i think this is interesting because uh on the one hand, what I think is happening here, right, is he's trying to to circle back around to his claim that play is kind of the the weird space from which culture arises, right? It's, it's the soil that uh, social institutions and habits uh, grow out of. Mm-hmm. Um, however, uh, like, kind of restating his case that the destiny of a culture can be read through its games, right? Mm-hmm. That if you... If you uh, there's actually something weirdly pre-modern about this, right? This idea that uh, in in the in the pre-modern or early modern sense, it's the the idea of the the microcosm and the macrocosm that the world is constructed such that um, by God, right? Specifically, the Christian God, uh, that there are correspondences between like the human body and like the cosmos at writ large, right? Like my head corresponds to a certain planet. Um, and uh, my the circulation of my blood corresponds to uh, the circulation of water through the world and things like that. Um, he has a kind of very similar sort of way of looking at games as microcosms for looking outward to the macrocosm of a culture in which that game is situated. Mm-hmm. Um, so what I would say about this is that he is correct, but he is not correct in the way that he thinks he's correct. <laughs> um <laughs> by which i mean right he is correct i think in the way that like you and i and like anyone who has like a knowledge or a background in cultural studies um would understand a game as representative of a culture right as uh capable of uh materializing um certain ideological and thematic concerns for a society at a given point in time as it is historically situated right mm-hmm. um so, right, in, in that sense, yeah, yeah, sure, play is a total activity. And in the other sense, um, no, it's, it's absolutely not, right? Like, play is uh, marginal. Um, it's, it's a thing that it's hard to kind of focus on, as, as his constant complaints about how no one is talking about play in the right way sort of demonstrate. <laughs> uh, it's weird, and it's ephemeral, and it's sort of, it's hard to, it's slippery. Are you saying we might need a parallax view? <gasps> Something like to that, see it,
0: Michael. Uh, I, I knew it. I knew you were gonna try to sneak yeah. this back in. At the end of the day.
1: <laughs> uh, All right. Well. What do What do you? Oh, I was gonna say. What do you think about that? Why uh, do sure. It's to total. Me? Whatever. Okay. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> I, no. I mean. I. So. I mean. It's a question to, to me. Of. It's that chicken of the egg question. Still. Mm-hmm. Right. Like. I. I like as a scholar. As, as someone who. Um, you know who, who thinks about these issues but doesn't write directly on games, or at least not right now. Um, you know, I'm writing about different things that interact with games. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that play is probably like an epiphenomena of other stuff. It isn't. is a truly like the real word, the proper use of the word emergent property, uh, in the sense of other things are happening and play comes out of those things. Um, I don't know. I don't think that I think. You know, the question, the, the metaphor of the soil from which culture grows. Mm-hmm. I don't know if play is that soil. Uh, no. I think that probably like expropriation of, of value is probably <laughs> or just the question of value itself. What can be valued and what can be generated or thought of as value, mm-hmm. um, which is not to say like the, the the economic valuation of that. But, for example, who can be thought of as a person? right yes because who can be thought of as a person seems to me to be a more fundamental question than who can play because if you can't be thought of as a person then you cannot be a person who plays right or can't be seen as someone who is playing games um so that seems important to me um you know i'd be very interested in someone doing maybe a comparative reading of calois and uh uh glissant edward glissant um We are going to be reading at some point soon um, uh, Beyond a Boundary, uh, which Mm -hmm. gets some of the exact same questions. You know, when you and I talked about this before, you know, we we kind of made a short list each of books we were interested in looking at. And I was like, you know, Beyond the Boundary is a big one for me. I want to get to it. Um, Mm -hmm. And I'd read it more recently than I read Man Playing Games. And even reading this Kaua book, I'm thinking, oh, my God, like. They get in the same period. like these are both coming out in the late 1950s. Yeah. They get to very similar questions and come to very, very different conclusions about how they work. Um, so I'm very excited to kind of to get to to that to think about um, if someone approaches these questions from a different social position and a different uh, position, a, a different uh, context of where important things emerge from in society, what the totality of society looks like and what it's shaped like, then what does that produce? So, so I think play is part of a total, a total thing, you know, mm-hmm. uh, it's part of a totality, but it's probably
1: not the totality. No,
0: the total activity.
1: Um, wh- what are we reading next? Michael, uh, the next book we are reading is the Game's Black Girls Play, Learning the Ropes from Double Dutch to Hip Hop uh, by Kira Gaunt. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna do it. I'm excited about this book. We were kind of looking for yeah. a,
0: a a comparative text to thinking about what games do socially. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah. I saw someone on Twitter, I don't remember who I, I would credit them if I did remember, but they were talking about teaching this book and really enjoying teaching it. And it's a book that doesn't get a lot of play in game studies for mm-hmm. whatever reason. And so we're going to read it and we're going to find out.
2: Yeah.
1: And I think, I mean, I haven't uh, finished it yet. I read like the introduction, but I think it's going to make a really good companion piece to Kaiwa because th- the concerns are the same, but the, the way wave- of investigating them is is much better and the conclusions are are much firmer it seems like okay good yeah i'm i'm looking
0: forward to it so yeah if people are interested in in getting that well of course i'll put a link in the uh, description down below in your whatever podcast app you're listening to you can go down and click it uh but it's done by nyu press and it came out in 2006 so with all of that information you should be able to google it Mm -hmm. oh if you are interested in contacting
1: us michael where where can people send us an email uh, people can send us emails at uh, game studies study buddies at gmail.com.
0: Okay. And uh, you can go to uh, twitter.com at range touch if you would like to follow the range touch apparatus. Uh, we do this show. We do. Um, some other stuff we do mages and murder dads we do podcasts uh and uh we're gonna have t-shirts very soon we need to figure out what our game study study buddies (laughs) t-shirt is gonna be
1: uh we'll have to we'll have to open it up to to the listeners i think so they know because i i don't know what people want out of this show
0: i i don't know either but yeah so if you were interested in a phrase or a uh uh a piece of information that you would like to put on a t-shirt to be the official first game study about study his t-shirt it can definitely be that line that that who pulled that out was that keith that pulled out that line that was uh, a, about like 48 minutes in <laughs> let's let's go to chapter 1 <laughs> um, um i don't re- oh who was that i don't remember <laughs> um but it, that might be a good one to put on there yeah. uh just the timestamp stamp uh with yeah. the thing so anyway Uh, you just let us know what you would like on a t-shirt for the, for the show. And we'll think about it, but yeah, there's going to be range touch in general t-shirts that will be out maybe by the time this episode comes out, but if not, certainly by the end of October, Uh, Michael, where can they find you on the internet?
1: Uh, you can find me on Twitter, uh, at Warren is dead. And my personal website is correlatedcontents.com.
0: You have any publication did. Oh, the, uh, your medium post you did has been since the last episode, right? You want to plug that real quick?
1: Yeah. Um, uh, well actually the really important thing to know is that I, I made a tweet about Danny DeVito, um, five days ago and he retweeted it. Um, (laughs) that's really my most pressing, uh, publication at this point. Uh, but yeah, no, um, I, I am on, uh, medium, uh, the, the, weird blogging platform. My username is Zduel, uh, which is just my last name backwards, Z-T-U-L, and I have an essay up um, called uh, Love Alters Not, and it is about uh, bisexuality and history, and it's sort of uh, introduction to methods of queer reading um, for... 16th century sonnets, but it's also a review of a book by Michael Amherst um, called Go the Way Your Blood Beats on uh, Truth, Bisexuality, and Desire.
0: A book that you thought is, not to spoil the review, but you think is interesting but makes some weird turns.
1: Yes. No, it was it was a book that I was extremely excited for, and then it just... It, it did not do what I thought it needed to do. And I had a lot of complicated feelings in response to it.
0: Mm-hmm. So go, go read that. It's a great, it's a great review. Um, if you like listening to Michael more than you like listening to me, if you like <laughs> listening to me, uh, you can find me uh, at C. Kunzelman uh, on, on Twitter. Uh, and uh, I had a recent essay come out, science fiction, film and television. Um, called the click of a button it's about speculation it's, uh, it's a couple uh, readings of a uh, of video games uh impetus and queers in love at the end of the world and the big red button that was on reddit and it's about using mm-hmm. mouse clicks to speculate Ooh. It's real fantastical sounding thing. So that's that's my most recent thing that's out. Um, so we will be back next month with um, the games Black Girls Play. Oh, and uh, if you want to support the show, you should do so by by um, doing two things for us, both of which are very, very helpful. Uh, the first one is going to be leaving us a review on your platform of choice. And the second one is uh, supporting us on Patreon. Um, that's That's a big one. So thank you. Yeah, thanks. Thanks to the people that support us already. And uh, you know, as little as a dollar a month helps. So thanks so much. Yeah. All right, well, that's the end of the episode. Goodbye. Bye.